Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Rebecca Kiesling lost two sons to fentanyl poisoning. Listen as she tells her story. Welcome to the podcast, Rebecca Kiesling. Thank you so much for being here. And first off, I just have to say, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. I appreciate it. I don't have children. I'll never know the unnatural pain of losing a child. You've lost two. Tell us about Caleb and Kyler and how you want us to remember them. I actually lost three children. I lost a baby girl, Cassie, 23 years ago. Um, So, I mean, part of the tragedy is my sons grew up going to the cemetery and we would see headstones of teenagers, you know, and you knew they were teenagers because they had their photos laser etched on the headstones. And we would talk about, you know, things like um, suicide or, you know, they might have been drunk driving deaths or, or drug use. And um, so my boys grew up getting every warning Um, Their birth mother had been addicted to heroin and Kyler's biological father as well had been addicted to heroin and actually tried to drown him when he was nine weeks old. So, um, and they knew that their grandmother, their maternal grandmother, um, biological grandmother had been addicted to substance use. and, And so they grew up hearing every warning and yet they still fell prey Um, we found my son Caleb's writings the day after they died three years ago. And he thought he was safe doing uh, pills. He thought as long as he didn't do anything like meth or heroin or crack, that he would be okay. And, you know, to be honest, I didn't even know what fentanyl was. It wasn't talked about a whole lot in the news at the time. I know that Caleb, before his death, was trying to educate other young people about the dangers of addiction. Kyler graduated just the day before he died. Had your boys struggled with addiction that you were aware of? I mean, you know, sometimes people just don't know. Their first addiction actually was vaping nicotine and that started in middle school and even though you know they were attending a school district that was one of the top five in the state of michigan and you know we were in a community that's been consistently ranked in top 20 cities to live in in america there's a problem with pill use i I found out now and 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 you know with vaping and nicotine and, and marijuana for teenagers Um, So all of those were gateway drugs for them. My son, Kyler, was a wrestler. All all of my kids played soccer as well. But when he would try to go off of nicotine for sports, he talked about how hard it was and that he would throw up for three days and he'd have horrible migraine headaches going through withdrawals from the vaping he was doing, which is far more powerful than cigarettes, you know, maybe like what we grew up, what we heard about, you know, other kids doing. I, I wasn't a smoker, but the amount of nicotine they get in vaping is so much more than, you know, what was available when we were growing up. I mean, everything's changed so fast. 
There were these earlier addictions, and as I understand it, your boys had taken Percocet, and it wasn't the Percocet that killed them. It was the Percocet that was laced with fentanyl. Just to clarify, it's not laced, right? I mean, if something's laced, you assume that there's some of the original in it. So they were just entirely fake Percocet. There was zero Percocet in it. Um, It was 100% fentanyl and fillers. So, you know, they're really murder pills. And kids... Let me just understand. So somebody and the dealer actually who sold them these pills, he got the Norcan, his life was saved. He's incarcerated, but alive. Uh, He sold these pills to your boys under the illusion that they were Percocet, but they were actually just fentanyl. It was fentanyl. Yeah. Um, We find out after you know, through the whole, after the arrest and and everything leading up to his plea and his sentencing, we found out that this drug dealer had um, been poisoned, you know, because I I try to use the word poisoning. I'm not going to assume it's an overdose. Overdose is when people die from their drug of choice. You know, I'm going to assume that he wasn't- Poisoning is when you substitute something for something else and- uh, I, I'm with you on that. Uh, we will refer to their deaths as poisonings because that, that is indeed right. what they were. But even even when someone's saved by Narcan, I would still call that a poisoning if it was fentanyl because very few people are taking fentanyl on purpose. But this drug dealer had, you know, quote, overdosed. He had been poisoned a month before and was saved a month prior um, using Narcan. And his girlfriend, same thing, only a few months before had been saved by Narcan. So he knew that he was getting pills with fentanyl in it. Um, so I, I I can't say that I know that he was trying to get fentanyl on purpose. People can be addicted to fentanyl and not know that that's what they're addicted to. And I 100% believe that was the case with my sons based upon what they had communicated to me and others. I think that it is worth noting that in Michigan, the state where you're from, there was a 23% increase in opioid deaths between 2019 and 2020 when your boys were killed. And then there was a 17% increase from 2020 to 21. Why was it important for you to tell your story in Congress? And I think that's particularly a a really relevant question now, because I think that most folks, I don't care your politics, I don't care who you voted for, there's a real dysfunction in our government where we're not kind of addressing what's happening to people on the ground. Well, I mean, fentanyl doesn't care what your race, gender, political That's why, please, have at it. Why was it important for you to go before this body and tell this story? You, You tell us. Well, I mean, I was asked, and so I said yes. I mean, it was just another opportunity to be able to share. And, you know, it's not like I'm out there every day doing this. I have to pace myself. Like, I don't want to remember... I don't want to remember my sons for how they died. I want to remember them for how they lived. And so here I am, you know, talking about them and sharing how they died. And it's just like, I can't do that all the time. I'm a Christian. And in the Bible, it says, um, do not give full vent to your anger. 
And I feel like I can't give full vent to my grief because um, if I do, I'll go dark, you know, for days. It's very difficult to pull out of that. And so I pace myself in my grief. I pace myself in, you know, my activism on this subject. And so I kind of like, you know, go in and out. But really, you know, anytime I'm asked to speak about it, I say yes. I just feel like there's some purpose in that and that, you know, I'm being asked for a reason. You just showed how the numbers have gone up. And one of the things I, I said when I testified is that, um, first of all, the drug deaths in the U.S. were 20,000 the year that my oldest son, Caleb, was born in, 20, in the year 2000. Um, 20,000 drug deaths. The year they died, 2020, there were over 100,000. And now I think we're on track for 125,000. And as you said, mm. even after they died, and their case was high profile in Michigan because three young people died. Um, my 18-year-old son, Kyler, my 20-year-old son, Caleb, and 17-year-old Sophia. And so it was a sensational story. So it made the news. And you would think that one death would be enough to sound the alarm that, hey, there's murder pills out there. Like, you need to be aware. Instead of the numbers going down, they're going up. Not just in Michigan, but all over the country, and it's it's demoralizing, you know, to to think that you know you try to share, you're trying to make a difference, and the numbers are going up, you know. And some people's attitudes are like, well, they're just they're drug addicts, you know. If your sons weren't drug addicts, like they went to died, and and you know, there's a lot of people, first of all, who are dying when they experiment the very first time. You know, there's that slogan, one pill can kill. The latest data is that eight out of 10 pills on the street have a deadly dose. Eight out of 10. So eight out of 10, eight out of 10. It was six out of 10 I mean, a couple that of is years an ago. Extraordinary. That's extraordinary. I think that like you, most people, I'm just going to throw this out there five years ago, 10 years ago, for those of us who are adults, I hadn't even heard of this. Like I didn't know what, I think most people did not know about fentanyl. They didn't, they hadn't heard of it. Uh, and I think even now to the point you just made, there is a tendency as there is with so many things to say, well, if you just made better choices, uh, you just wouldn't be here. I mean, there, but for the grace of God go many, many, many of us. So I, I just, I, I want to dispense with that argument, but what I do think is important. And I think it was important and it's such an important part of your work is that you are bringing awareness about a problem that a lot of people still don't know about. Um, I know that you have used this platform and good on you because I want to talk in a little bit about how you take care of yourself. And I think that you will have your story will have lessons for people who are dealing with grief about how to take care of themselves. You have been speaking at DEA family summits. Tell us about those. What happens at those? Um, first of all, if you lost a loved one to fentanyl or, or any kind of drug death, I highly recommend attending. They've been focusing the last two years more. Well, since they started, they're really focusing on fentanyl deaths um, in this discussion, and it's, they've changed the way that that they communicate the DEA. Because last year, they used the term overdose for everything, and they said that they learned from all the parents and other loved ones attending to, you know, say overdose and poisonings. 
because, you know, there's both. There's people who are still overdosing from certain, from their drug of choice. And then now mostly it's people who are being poisoned by fentanyl. And so it's really good that, you know, the government's learning from us. Like we attend, we share our heart, we explain, we tell our stories, they even film our stories and it's, it's making a difference. And then it's a great way to network and they give us briefings on what's happened. Like, for example, um, one of the Chapitos, like El Chapo's sons, one of them was actually apprehended. Um, and he's been in U.S. custody for over a month now, which is great news. They just give us all kinds of information and briefings so that if we do media interviews, like we can communicate. Um, I also presented on how to address the media at the national summit because I've, I've been an activist my entire adult life and I do that kind of training for people within my organization. It's a whole different subject matter, but um, still, you know, life affirming. And so I was invited to do a presentation at the national summit last month in um, Arlington, Virginia. And, you know, how to get media interviews, how to set up for an interview, how to now I'm all self-conscious because I'm saying that it's like, oh, did I set up well today? <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I want to equip others. After I testified in Congress, I got so many media interviews and I, I was so busy. And then I finally started responding to people's messages after like a month of steady interviews. And I was burnt out talking about it. I was just absolutely burnt out and um, needed to get away, needed a break. But all these other parents were asking, how do I do what you do? How do I get these opportunities? And so I want to equip others to be able to do that uh, so that, you know, there can be a whole army of us who can be bold enough to go out there. I, I'm sure that you have uh, listeners, viewers who you know, tragically have also loved, lost, lost a loved one and they would like to have a chance to do this sort of thing. I would encourage you to join the group on Facebook, Lost Voices of Fentanyl, because they'll keep you posted of, of different opportunities and, and ways to sort of get active. And then there's also like support groups. But sometimes the support groups are hard to be in because it's just every day more faces are added of, of those who died. And, and it's it's so demoralizing and it's like, it just doesn't end. I have to say, just as somebody who works in media, what you are doing in terms of educating people to go out there, because it's not easy. I mean, even sometimes when you've got a hard, painful story, as you know, uh, people will find a way to level some hate. It matters not. Um, but for you to be able to equip other victims to go out and tell their stories. I think that's extraordinary because there's no better educator, uh, sadly, than someone who has lived this. How do you take care of yourself? One of the things I would like to see happen that I think we should be able to get unanimous bipartisan support like across the country because it, it's not, you know, it doesn't involve like the politics of the border or politics of, you know, um, whether you're encouraging drug use or anything like that, you know, people get into deba debates on that kind of stuff. Something that really disturbed me is the autopsy report for my boys. 
And in Michigan, we call this not the coroner, but we call it the medical examiner. Depending on the state, it's either coroner or medical examiner. And this medical examiner for cause of death, instead of saying fentanyl toxicity, which is a medical finding, and as an attorney and a judge, I I know you could appreciate this, um, he put cause of death drug abuse which again, lends itself to this Mm. discrimination. And I called him up and he said to me, who are you to tell me I've been doing this for 40 years? And oh, oh, you don't like it? And he said to me, what are you going to do about it? Like, okay, I'm going to work to get this changed. And then he said, "Um, oh, you want me to sugarcoat it for you? Your sons wouldn't have died if they weren't abusing drugs. Well, you know what? They wouldn't have died five years earlier. Wait, 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 I'm sorry. I, wait, wait, I have to, the medical examiner is having this conversation with you as you were talking about how he's describing yeah. your boy's yeah. deaths. And in every single case in Oakland County, Michigan, he puts cause of death drug abuse instead of a medical finding, instead of a scientific finding of, you know, whatever toxicity of whatever particular drug. And so it makes you wonder, well, how does it get? Can you imagine in any other context, let's just say, that if a sex worker is murdered by her client, is the cause of death murder or is it prostitution? He had it right when it came to manner of death. And, you know, manner of death is either um, suicide, homicide, or accidental or undeterminable. And unlike with like a, a stabbing or a gunshot, you know, where a medical examiner could make a determination whether it's accidental or, or homicide, with toxicity reports, like a medical examiner can't tell. That's going to be left up to a, de- a detective to determine the manner of death. So I think he was correct when he said undeterminable. But around the country, what I'm hearing from other parents is that some of them in their autopsy report, the medical examiner will say accidental or will say suicide when they really don't know. And so there's no way to have any kind of prosecution when you've got, you know, the cause of death as suicide or accidental. There's no way you'll ever have an arrest for any of these drug dealers. And so I think that I'd like to work with others to try to do truth in sentencing. I think that this would be a non-controversial thing that everybody could rally together. I don't think it has any other kind of political implications. Let's just have, you know, truth in the autopsy reports. Call it what it is and describe things as they are. Uh, Tell us, Rebecca, after three losses, three children. As you said earlier, you know, you really have to pace yourself and you've got to pace how you talk about this and you've got to, because you don't want to live it all the time. And I, and I will say again, I, I appreciate you so much coming here and sharing your story with me and my viewers and listeners. Tell people how you draw the line. Like when you, how do you know when you've had too much and what do you do when you've had too much and when the grief just starts to overwhelm? Well, let me give a little bit of advice to some people who are friends with someone who who lost a loved one. First of all, don't ever say like, oh, they're better off, you know? Like, no, that's that's not right. Um, or to say, well, it's got, oh, it must have been God's timing. You know, you wouldn't say that if someone was, you know, shot, right? If they were murdered by, you know, being shot with a gun, like you would never say that to someone. And and so, 
You know, I had people say that when my baby girl died, she had a serious genetic disorder and there was medical malpractice involved and she stopped breathing after he took off of oxygen. And and then the same thing when my sons died, people saying, oh, must have been God's timing. Like, oh, don't say that. So try not to say, you know, awkward things like that. And then some people tried to say, oh, you know, the, oh, the best years of your life are ahead of you. That's not a good one either. But I will say having, you know, lost my baby girl and having lost my son, the same thing happened both times. In the first days, couple weeks, a lot of people are there. A lot of people rally around you and and that's wonderful. You know, you need to be held up then. And they, you know, bring meals and all that. But then everybody disappears. And at that point, the only time that I would hear from people is, and these are my closest friends over the years, is with sort of a pity call. You know, like, hi, Rebecca, how are you? I want you to know I'm praying for you, you know, and, and then that's it. Or maybe they'd offer to come take me for a walk. Um, but I, I no longer got invites to go do normal things that we used to do, um, normal visits to their home or to go to the movies or, or even to go do something fun. You know, in the last few years, I made a whole new set of friends. So I, I was really kind of floundering. I had stress tremors, panic attacks. I was in grief share uh, through church with other parents who lost their children in you know many different ways, but there were some other parents who lost them to a drug death. And then I was also with a Christian counselor and I was you know, listening to a book on heaven. And it was like, it just sort of kept my grief like right in front of my face all the time. And so a friend of mine said, well, mm. he's a physician. And he said, the treatment is Xanax. I'm like, I'm not going on Xanax. That's how my son said they got started on pills. Kids brought it to school from parents' unlocked medicine cabinets. They brought in opioids and, you know, Percocets and Xanax and oxycodone and, um, I'm like, that's not crossing this threshold. That's not going in this body. And he said, well, you have to do something or you're not going to have a choice, like, you know, if you're deteriorating. And so I started running and then I, I had been in terrible shape at that point, but I, within a few weeks, I was able to run six miles and my knees started hurting. So then I started cycling and I decided I'm going to do a triathlon, which I did. And then I started actually racing gravel bikes and I made a whole new set of friends from my triathlon club, people who knew me um, as just, you know, Rebecca, another athlete, not like, you know, oh, poor mom who lost her sons. Um, so they they treated me more normal. And then I, I do ballroom dancing. I've done that off and on for years. But again, those people, they don't know what I've been through, you know, and I get to go out and just be treated normal. And so I think that um, it's important, mm. you know, if, if you're not getting treated that way and you need, you know, a sort of a life ring to get pulled out of that, you know, make some new friends, do some new activities, find a new club, um, you know, do something. And then if you were a friend of somebody or you are who lost their loved one, invite them to do normal things, you know, do something fun and have a chance to experience mm. some joy, to feel like there can be days of joy again. I have to, again, not just express my thanks and appreciation to you for sharing the saddest moment that any parent could uh, experience, but also for discussing and displaying and sharing with us 
your resilience. And I'm not suggesting, you know, by resilience, I don't mean that you forget the sadness or that, you know, you snap your fingers and the pain is gone. But the way that you've really curated and molded this life that will remind you of other things, of beauty, of the beauty of life, of the beauty of your boys, of the beauty and joy and energy of your own, obviously incredible, powerful body, since you ballroom dance and engage in all sorts of athletic endeavors. Uh, you really, I, I, I am, I'm so grateful that you're here because I think that you will inspire people and remind them um, how to find and make happy moments in the middle of true grief. I appreciate it. Um, I really do. But I, there were a lot of people on Facebook who knew me who and they knew me, you know, my leadership with other issues. And they'd say like, oh, you're the strongest woman I know. You're so resilient. And I'm like, gosh, if they could see me on a day-to-day basis, honestly, I am a shell of what I once was. I am not I know I'm not as strong as as I had been before losing them. But, you know, what I tell other parents is, um, and it's kind of easier when you meet other parents and you're able to, when you can speak positivity into them, you can see what life means to you as well. So it's easy for me to look at some of the other parents who lost loved ones and tell them, you know, you matter. Your life matters. You deserve to have a good life. Um, you have to fight for it. A friend said, it takes no effort to drown, but you have to fight to survive. And I, and it's easy for me to look at other parents and say, but you're oh, worth that. Mm. You are worth that. And then by saying that to them, it kind of helps me to remind myself that, you know, I'm worth it. My boys would want me to, um, you know, to, to do the best I can under, under the circumstances. Um you know, it's hard to even say thrive, but you know, sometimes there's days when I feel like I'm, I'm dragging a dead body around, you know, like, come on, get out of bed. Like, I go to the grocery store, you know, <laughs> like, and it, it's hard. There's days when it's really hard. Um, but I do have three daughters, but it's like not even doing it for them because, you know, they're older, they're going to move on with their lives and there's going to be, they're going to move away and I'm still going to have to do it for me. Right. So I have to remind myself that, that I'm worth it just like any other parent is. Um, and just like my kids' best friends who are devastated. There's so many young people in this country. It's not just parents and siblings, but there's a lot of young people who lost their best friends. And you know, when I tell them, I want you to have a great life. I want you to, to live enough for two. And they should, you know, they're young. It's like, you know, my son's girlfriend, like she was so devastated and to see her so young and so, you know, I want her to be happy. And she did meet someone else and she ended up um, unfriending me, you know, on social media, she said, because she has to have a chance to move on with her life. And I wholeheartedly believe that. And so anybody else who's going through this, like, you know, you all deserve to have a great life. Just live enough for two and take care of yourselves. Hmm. Live enough for two if you are in that sad circumstance. And remember that uh, you're worth still living for and having the best life that you can. One of the things that helped me to fall asleep at night 
um, is actually uh, watching dry bar comedy. I don't know if you ever watch dry bar, but it's all like clean comedy. I don't. And what it's is nice that? Because, uh, what? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I was like, is that bloke comedy no, at the blow dry store? Dry bar, bar comedy. They okay. don't serve alcohol yeah. where they film this. And it's in Utah. <laughs> um, but it's all clean comedy, mm-hmm. so they're not allowed to to talk mm-hmm. about drugs and they're not allowed to talk about um, you know, like sex. you know, it's clean, right? They're not gonna use bad words, which is nice because I don't wanna you right, know watch. Right, right. A comedian who's joking about drugs, you know. So watching that, like literally, that's how I would fall asleep at night. Laughter is good medicine. Rebecca Kiesling, you are a survivor and a hero and a teacher. And thank you for sharing your story. And thank you for being here. I really appreciate you. Well, Tanya, I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time 